the Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I'm senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Craig Kostelik, who is the global chief business officer at Condé Nast. How's Condé Nast's business doing this year? I think a lot of media businesses, as you recently reported, have um, hit a rough patch in the second half of this year. How are things going for Condé? Going good, actually. We start out the conversation talking about how the economic downturn has impacted business, um, if it has impacted their advertising business. And while he does say like certain categories, uh, you know, might have been impacted Really, holistically, they're on track to beat their last year's revenue and 2021's total revenue. Um, It's interesting that it is a unique case, I think, right now that they're doing as well as they are from an advertising standpoint. Um, But we talk about the kind of reasons for that. Recently, Condé just underwent a globalization process, you can call it, where the U.S.-based team and the international editions and you know, London-based teams, they're all starting to work more collectively together. And that's happening on the brand level, which we've talked about in past um, Digiday episodes with, uh, you know, the teams over at Condé Nast Traveler um, and Architectural Digest. But they are also combining kind of strategies um, on the sales side, too. So they're looking for ways to sell the brands, um, uh, like the international editions of the brands to clients in order to get larger campaigns that are longer spanning and, um, you know, more money. But they're also just, I think, really figuring out how to switch from that, you know, brand approach of selling to a categorical approach to selling. And it seems like it's been somewhat successful in getting ad revenue to be stable right now. What's the distinction there between the categorical approach and the brand approach to selling? Yeah, so I think it's been, um, you know, a a somewhat common shift in in media companies and how they're organizing their sales teams, but it's really focusing your sellers on selling one advertising category across all of the brands in the portfolio. Um, So, you know, if someone's focused on technology, they're selling their tech brands and tech tech clients on Wired as well as Vogue and as well as Architectural Digest, for instance. Like they're looking for larger, I guess, media buys across a lot of brands for clients that are categorically specific. Um, And historically, it's been more so like, I'm on Wired sales team, so I'm only selling Wired. Um, And so it's a shift that requires a lot of changes to the way the team is structured. And we talk about that actually towards the end of the episode quite a bit about what the challenges were with getting your sales teams to be okay with switching, you know, from a a brand focus to a category focus. And in a current economic downturn like this, when, you know, category like tech is really struggling in a lot of cases, what that means to the salesperson in terms of like a, you know, compensation um, impact, really. I mean, if a category is not spending a lot right now, that salesperson is at risk of not making as much. So we talk about the struggles of transitioning to that organization strategy and how he's been trying to do it in a way where people understand why it ultimately benefits the business and find ways to get the team all kind of on board with it, which is not easy. Yeah, I'm interested to hear how they're threading that needle. So I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. 
All right, Craig, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. So I'd like to start off this interview by talking about your newly expanded role, because I'm really curious what that kind of looks like, what that entails, and what you're now kind of tasked with doing in this new position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and speak about this. So, you know, in, in, in my newly expanded role, um, you know, Condé Nast overall over the last couple of years has... Um, you know, we've really brought the company together. You know, Roger, our, our, our C, our global CEO, has um, you know he really came on board to to bring all the markets that we operated in that really kind of ran as independent markets and really bring them together as one global company. And so we've been on that transformation over the last couple of years. And um, you know, I think on the commercial side specifically. Um, you know, some some evolutions happened, which which impacted me. And so, um, his, you know, I've been in the U.S. I've worked for Condé Nast for for about ten or eleven years. Um, and 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 my last kind of like U.S. specific role was was leading revenue in the U.S. And as we've evolved, um, I've had the opportunity to kind of um, add Western Europe, um, which includes the markets that we operate in, so U.K., France, Italy, Spain, and Germany. Um, to, as part of that remit, and then also um, our global commercial partnerships team. So, um, you know, that's a team that um, mostly sits in um, London and Paris. And what they're charged with is um, really working with our um, a lot of our key accounts, our key clients, and helping to facilitate um, multi-market opportunities by being kind of like a central point of contact. And so, you know, all of the markets you know, have like local brand teams, local sales teams interact with local clients. This team really talks to um, the global decision makers and helps them, um, you know, develop uh, creative campaigns and then help distribute that in more of a consistent way in parallel across a lot of different markets. And so, you know, historically, um, the global commercial partnerships team, the five Western European markets and the U.S. team all operated kind of like in parallel to one another. And so, you know, my role is really about, um, you know, bringing uh, those local commercial teams together. Um, and really just, you know, again, kind of, if, if you look at this, the, the sum is definitely greater than the parts. And I think, you know, that's what I'm kind of being tasked with is, is, is making sure that that's the case. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting trend that we're seeing across a lot of media companies lately and, and not just in advertising necessarily, but, um, a story I wrote, you know, earlier this week at the time of recording was about how companies are restructuring their like overall revenue departments. So integrating commerce into the same team that oversees advertising and oversees subscriptions in some cases. And I think it's a really interesting kind of, study on how all of these different areas of revenue are really beneficial to one another if you kind of think of it as a holistic picture. Um, and even in our CRO series that we did uh, a couple months ago now, a lot of the CROs that came on mentioned that they had taken on like subscriptions in their purview in the past year and in uh, commerce as well. And so it's a very interesting kind of, uh, you know, Condé Nast is approaching it as like a global kind of you know, overview, but I think there's a lot of this happening in the industry. And so I am curious about kind of the actual, um, you know, breaking down of silos and the actual like organizational kind of operational side of things. But before we get into that, I do want to talk about kind of overall revenue for the company to really kind of set the stage there. And then we can kind of dive into the different areas. Um, so I, saw that Axios reported, I think, in August this year that you're on track to uh, surpass or meet at least 2021 revenue, which is 
great considering this year has been kind of a, a little bit of a slowdown slash potential kind of bad year for a lot of media companies. Um, but that was reported as about $2 billion. Um, curious, are you guys still on track, you know, a couple months later to reach that level? Are you uh, seeing any kind of slowdown given the economic kind of uh, troubles that we're, we're looking at? Or where are you kind of netting out for 2022? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that figure that you quoted um, was inclusive of consumer revenue and t- as, as well. So just speaking for, you know, kind of like ri- my remit on the commercial and advertising side, um, we're definitely going to, to exceed last year's total. Um, we're continuing to see a lot of momentum um, in the marketplace. And I think that for us, um, even though that there, is, there, there are these, these headwinds from a recessionary standpoint, um, I do think that it's not kind of like a, an umbrella sort of thing. If you if you look at um, a luxury consumer, if you look at the luxury and fashion industry, a lot of those quarterly earnings just came out and you can see how their businesses continue to grow. Um, I mean, I was just in, um, you know, London and, and Europe uh, the past, over the past month and uh, flights, I mean, the price of flights, uh, how planes packs, uh, how packed planes are, um, hotels. I mean, uh, from a travel perspective, I mean, I just think that that industry... Um, the demand can't keep up from a luxury segment perspective. And so, um, and then you see things, you know, such as like, you know, I think like food, you know, CPG, um, spirits, things of that nature, um, filling it, you know, tech, uh, filling it a little bit more. And so, um, you know, for us, we're well positioned, I think, given kind of like what industries are um, filling this recession at this point right now, um, or those headwinds right now versus which ones are kind of continuing to to um, see growth and see acceleration. Um, and so I think that that kind of like trends with our, our overall business. I think we're really well positioned in terms of like um, the engagement and reach we have against, um, you know, a premium consumer. Um, and so, you know, for us, I think can, business continues to kind of like move forward, and um, you know, over the next you know two and a half months, I think uh, we'll definitely exceed last year's revenue, and 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 we'll be on goal. Um, and so we're excited about that. And um, yeah, I mean, our brands are just continuing to. You know, we had Vogue World, uh, you know, a couple months ago, um, which was kind of the 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 first time that we did a fashion show um, to cap off New York Fashion Week, and. Um, and so it's examples like that where I feel like we're just continuing to innovate and continue to tap into um, a consumer, into the categories that are continuing to flourish, um, even though obviously this is a challenging time. And um, if you talk to any, you know, um, you know, you look at CNBC enough or, or, or Bloomberg or any of those, uh, the pundits, I mean, um, it feels like a storm is coming for sure. But I can say in our business right now, as we sit here today, um, you know, we feel really good about where we're at and, and the continued growth and momentum. Yeah. So obviously that you mentioned that $2 billion figure is in, is for both advertising and uh, consumer as well. Um, do you have a figure for where uh, advertising and commercial specifically will hit this year? You know, we, Condé Nast being a private company, I can't speak specifically uh, to what the figures are exactly. Um, but again, we are we are continuing to see growth over 2021 and, and, and feel good about where we're going to end the year. So you mentioned Vogue uh, and getting into the brand level. We had um, a couple of the Condé Nast brands on uh, the podcast over the past, I feel like year maybe. Um, and globalization, like that, you know, strategy of working across the various iterations of the brand around the world definitely came up in those conversations. Um, Condé Nast Travel, I be- I, Traveler, I believe, was the last 
Kanye West brand that we had on as a guest. Um, but obviously, this has been ongoing for several years now. Um, I am curious, you know, on a brand level, how this is playing into the advertising strategy because I feel like there are new products, new events, new um, you know video initiatives. Like there's a lot that are coming through the brand level that I feel like is probably leading into some of the success you're seeing in advertising. But I wanted to talk to you more about that. Um, so maybe starting with Vogue, can you, I guess, like share a little bit more about the strategy there? Because I do feel like it is very much, uh, you mentioned the first fashion show that the the brand has hosted. Um, I noticed that was open to, you know, anyone really, if they bought a ticket, they could show up, which was really interesting because I feel like that's not typically the Vogue uh, strategy for events. But can you talk a little bit about kind of the development of the brands and having these more like IRL kind of activations or, you know, what this is doing from uh, advertising standpoint to get, you know, advertisers excited about these new products? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's, what's incredible to me is that, you know, when you take a step back and you really look at like the global advertising marketplace, um, you know, obviously, you know, companies like Google and, and Facebook make up a huge part of the market, but there aren't really any brands that, you know, if you are a marketer that you can do a partnership with a brand and show up in China or India or the UK or Mexico in the US. And no matter where, like when a consumer sees that in each of those markets, if you show up with a Vogue, if you show up with a GQ, consumers immediately know what that means and what that represents and the halo effect that that can have on uh, another brand from a marketing perspective i just think is is so interesting i mean the 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 right to win that we have when you think about the competitive set in terms of a content creator that is that well known ubiquitously across all of the diff- all the different markets and and around the world i just think is is incredible. And we don't talk about that that much. It's like even NBC is Sky in the UK. You know what I mean? Even like Netflix, like, of course, you have Squid Games or something like that. That's like a global phenomenon. But like, I mean, if you go to the UK and you watch Netflix, right, the top 10 trending shows in the IP and Netflix isn't necessarily like a one to one with like what your experience is in the US, right? Um, and not that the content experiences for these brands are, 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 you know, ubiquitous, right? Like we obviously have like global approaches, but the actual IP itself is so well known in each of these markets that it just creates this incredible, incredible opportunity, I think, for us that we've never truly tapped into because, you know, from an operating model standpoint, we were operating as individual markets, right? And so this idea that we had such a unique right to win and that by pulling this together, um, it kind of started to, in some ways, I think, you, you start lessing your competitive set, right? Like if I look at my US business or if I look at the UK business, you know, you have a competitive set within Vogue or within GQ or within, you know, Connie Nast Traveler, right? But then when you start taking this up a notch and start going global, you're like, wow, like from a content creation standpoint, you actually don't have many brands in the space that actually can compete with this at all, right? Um, so you kind of start there, right, with like this thesis, um, and, and and obviously like our owners and our board that was the the impetus for you know bringing on a global CEO and kind of like starting this whole process, right? Um, but as we look at this, like as as we're coming as we're coming together from a global commercial perspective, I just think that um, you can't overstate how much of an amazing opportunity this is for us um, if we can execute against it correctly, right? So it kind of all starts there. 
And then I think that we kind of look at it from a second perspective is that most, you know, most of marketers are spending at a local market level right now, right? That's just like predominantly how it's always been, right? You have global budgets that are allocated by the local markets that are activated against. And so that's kind of like what we're spending a lot of our time thinking about. And and I'm going to get back to kind of what you said, because this kind of is like the segue to like talk about like what the brands are doing, right? But if you look at the, the the Met, for example, right? It happens in New York. Our US market team is selling the Met, right? Live streams and, and, you know, ads on Vogue.com and, and on YouTube and, and everything that we do to commercial, um, to, to monetize the Met. Um, it has never been an opportunity for any of our commercial teams really outside of the U.S., right? And so then when we have these big opportunities that, you know, have pretty sizable, you know, um, um, price tags on them and you're approaching brands, right, they have to really look at this and say, okay, um, how am I going to fit this within my U.S. budget? And when you think about the Met, I mean, it is a global phenomenon. I mean, when you look at this, it is the biggest, and, and, and we can bring in somebody from Meta. That, that they told me this, so I, I don't, I, I'm not claiming this on my own, but this was the biggest, um, the most engaged cultural moment for, I think, 21 to 34 year olds on the platform, right? So the biggest platform globally against like probably one of the most important demographics, the Met was the biggest cultural moment, right? And so the idea that, you have all of this engagement and all of this audience from a global perspective for this event, but that we as a company are only using one of our local market teams to monetize it. I mean, that is such a significant gap, right? And so the way that we're really looking at it is saying, okay, if, 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 if we're going to do these live streams or we're going to really engage our platform partnerships and it has a, it's going to reach people globally and everyone cares about it and is engaged about it globally, how do we start approaching partners at a global level and say, okay, while you might be allocating your budgets from a local perspective, we can give you audiences that this IP moment, this tentpole reaches from a local perspective and really start helping them kind of like unlock opportunities by tapping into um, more of their market budgets outside of the US in order to activate sponsorships with IP and our tentpoles like that. And so that's kind of like the, I would say like the thesis for us that, um, you know, again, over the last like three months, um, you know, we, again, just got back from, you know, part of the trip was, was Milan and Paris meeting with all our key um, fashion and luxury partners, uh, extremely well received, right? Like, for them, this is like, you know, it's kind of like a breath of fresh air, like, finally, right? Like, let's talk about how we can unlock the biggest cultural moments. And let's think about all of our markets. Let's think about all of our budgets um, instead of talking about things in silos, right? Because they're thinking about their business from a global perspective at first and foremost. And so when you start kind of like thinking like that, like where the opportunity is and, and, and our right to win and in the competitive set and what marketers are looking to for us, you start kind of then really engaging editorial about, you know, how they're thinking about things from a global perspective. You know, you talked about Connie Nast Traveler, um, or really when you look at any of our brands and how they show up in, in all of the markets, it's really important, you know, one of the reasons why there aren't that there, there's not that many brands in our competitive set from a global perspective is because consumers want to engage with local content, right? There's not much content itself that reaches people globally that everyone's super engaged with because they want it tailored to, you know, their specific, you know, region or market or their nuances, you know, cultural nuances. And so, while we are globalizing, of course, we maintain that kind of like consistency, I think, of like that local approach to continue to engage consumers. But there are these moments in which 
they're going to be bigger than um, they're going to be global in nature. But then how are you translating them for your local market? Right. So we can talk about Met or we can talk about Vogue World. You could talk about, you know, what Vanity Fair does from a film perspective. Right. Like we've been showing up at, you know, obviously Oscars is, is, is I feel like Vanity Fair Oscars is, is, you know, even though it's a cultural moment, Oscars itself, I think Vanity Fair is like its own moment within that, obviously. Um, but I mean, we've shown up in such significant ways at, at Cannes Film Festival, at Venice Film Festival, right? But we've done that as like in, as individual markets, right? The opportunity to kind of say, hey, let's partner together on a Vanity Fair film awards global program in which we can activate you at the Oscars, we can activate you at Cannes, we can activate you at Venice and talk about that holistically. I mean, it's, it's I don't know, I, I think for us, it's like, it, it's just complete white space right now. Really the only competitive set that we have when you start thinking about that, like I mentioned earlier, is the platforms, right? But they're not content creators, they're distributors, right? And so I think there's this world in which like, you know, define, you know, work with us to create culture from a global perspective um, as a creator, right? And then how do we work with the platforms in order to distribute that and drive performance and drive measurement? How do you bring these two things together for clients to unlock that on a global perspective? Um, I, I think there's so much um, opportunity around that. And I think clients are really clamoring for that. And so, you know, that's for us, I think, what is, is really exciting about kind of the recent developments. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back. A couple questions from that. I'm curious, obviously you're seeing advertising revenues increase this year. Um, but to your point, like the Met is an expensive thing to activate against. And when you're bringing it on a larger scale, it sounds like that obviously comes with a cost. Um, a, a few other publishers I've spoken with over the course of the past you know, few months have said, they're seeing fewer but larger deals. So I do think there are some advertisers who are like, we know this works. We know this partner works. We're just going to, you know, put whatever budget we have behind this brand and and kind of, you know, let it be there. It's more secure. I do think, though, that, you know, generally speaking, there are struggled budgets that are just not as big this year as as maybe they were last year. So I am curious, you know, when you're pitching these larger full scale kind of activations um, and against newer things like the Vogue World, uh, you know, fashion show and, and event as well. How are you, you know, selling them on this? How are you getting that uh, limited budget if, you know, there are some restrictions on, on you know, spend? Um, like, what's the kind of process of selling these things right now? And is it, is it, just a few kind of known uh, loyal customers that you're getting to go on this higher level, or is it newer customers that you're able to bring through with these expanded opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, between, I think it really starts with like, from a measurement perspective, there's been, even though maybe like to your point, like budgets are maybe more fragmented or there's a feeling that, you know, they're not as plentiful from, from some of the people that you talk to. I would say that um, if you look at like a Google and a Facebook, right? I mean, they have been getting gigantic budgets for a long time, right? And because of all the things happening, all the fragmentation and measurement, you know, the iOS things happening, I mean, the reality of um, the, the, the composite of, of audience on mobile and Safari web, which, you know, for... <laughs> For the purposes of like cookies and attribution and things like that is, is is kind of similar, I think, from a marketing perspective as like the developments that have happened in the iOS ecosystem. Um, 
all the fragmentation that's happened in connected TV, which are just a bunch of mini walled gardens, essentially, um, performance, it's not as easy to put money in, right? And that to say, oh, this is how hard my money's working, right? And so this idea that you're going to keep doing the same thing that you've done year after year over the last four or five years, if you continue doing that, you're going to look like you're doing a worse job, essentially, right? Because it's performing. So you have to think about like, okay, what am I going to do to kind of like cut through? I have to think about something else. The, the same old stuff isn't going to continue working. And I think that's what we've been able to do really well is that, you know, for us, you know, we are creating culture, right? That's like, that's what we do. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, from a buying community perspective, you know, they buy very vertically, right? I think for us, like what we've been trying to beat the drum on for a long time is that, uh, well, people don't experience culture vertically, right? Like when you think about the Oscars or you think about the Super Bowl or you think about the Met, it just doesn't happen on Meta. It just doesn't happen on Roku. It just doesn't happen on YouTube, right? It happens across all of those things. But the way that advertising is bought, it's very vertical focused, right? And so, you know, as shakeups have happened in terms of like measurement around buying that way, it's created a little bit of, I would say, um, doubt around doing that. And then I think when there's doubt, people are open to, to thinking about things in new ways, right? And so I think all of these opportunities, it's like in, in your, you know, from a, from a creative perspective, you know, from a marketer perspective, most marketers want to do incredible things to take their brand to the next level. The issue is though, the way that we're the way that advertising's bought and measured kind of almost in some ways like inhibits them from doing that fully. Um, and so I think a lot of the measurement challenges that we've had have almost like enabled people to take risks with creativity and culture that maybe they didn't feel comfortable doing or that, you know, from a procurement perspective, uh, you know, when they're getting their marketing budgets, they didn't feel like they had permission to, right? And I think that we're seeing that get getting, you know, shaken up a little bit in the marketplace. Um, and so I think, you know, for us, like that to, that to us is kind of like the hyper focus is put really compelling culture defining opportunities in front of people and then really work with them on, okay, how are your budgets allocated? How do you need to measure this? And trying to get as close to that as possible um, from kind of like how they normally do business. Yeah. And is that able to be done um, like through agencies or are you kind of seeing this change, the shift happening more so with direct deals? Because I feel like another challenge I've heard uh, thr like throughout the industry, and this is not a new challenge, this has been ongoing. It's just like when you're working with an agency, they're beholden to a very specific budget. And for their clients, they have to sell, you know, just uh, on CTV, or they have to just sell on digital, you know, media. And because of that, it does inhibit some of the, uh, some of the innovation or experimentation that you mentioned. Um, so how are you kind of approaching this with your clients? Is this mostly in direct deals that you're able to scale up and scale outwards? Or are you seeing that some agencies might be willing to bend if you're giving them a, maybe a good enough reason to do so? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's always exceptions to the rule in, in terms of like what I'm about to say. But I would say like if I'm if I'm being uh, if I'm generalizing like kind of like the 80-20 rule, it really is a triangulation between the agency and the client. Um, and I think it kind of has to be that way, right? Because this isn't, you know, it is slightly unorthodox, right? In terms of like the way that media is bought, you know, whether it's like connected TV or, you know, platforms and walled gardens, like you can't, the video investment groups or the social investment groups at agencies, like they have a specific remit. And 
it's like for me, like I, I embrace this idea that it's like, it's okay. Like I don't, I don't feel any, um, I'm not self-conscious about the fact that like our business model as a distributed model, like we are a consumer led company. So we go where the consumer is. Advertising is not necessarily bought where the, cons- I mean, it's, it, it, it reaches consumers, but it doesn't actually like correlate to consumer behavior, right? You don't only spend your time on these individual platforms. And so, um, to, to think that like, you know, agencies are obviously critically, critically important for us. And, and we have a lot of strong strategic partnerships, but because of the way that media is bought and our business model of being more of a distributed business model, if we put all of the reliance on just the agency to like embrace what we're saying so much and then be able to convince their clients, I feel like that's not putting them in a fair situation. Right. And so, you know, obviously like historically Condé Nast has extremely, extremely strong client relationships. And I think over the last like five, six years, especially as more of our business has moved to digital and to video, we've developed really strong agency relationships as well. Um, And so, you know, for us, that's really what it's been about is bringing both of those, um, you know, the client and the agency both to the room um, having both conversations and making sure that like at the end of the day, it's our job to tell our story. It's our job to talk about like what we're doing, how we can define performance. Um, we don't want to, you know, trying to delegate that or put the onus on one party to kind of like do that would would not be fair. And I don't think it would be very successful. Right. And so, you know, sometimes I think there's like this energy in like the agency client dynamic where it's like, well, the agency is not helping us. Let's go client direct. Right. Or we're going to get the deal done with the client and then force the agency to do that. Um, I genuinely like our culture and our approach as, as we sit here today is really that we need both groups at the table talking about these things, giving us feedback, sharing it. Right. Because even though we know that, like, you know, when we think about the impact or the influence again of like a Vogue or a GQ or Vanity Fair, like nobody's going to argue that. Right. But if it doesn't meet the criteria in terms of like reach and frequency, um, if it doesn't map back to how they're defining lifetime value, like that's where the friction always happens, right? Like if it was just about how much passion that you had for our brands and wanting to do something amazing from a creative perspective, I mean, we would win hundred percent of our deals. Right. And so understanding kind of like the infrastructure and, and, and the plumbing and kind of mapping that to, you know, the creative side of our business and really the culture defining side of our business. I feel like that's what we spend a lot of our time as a commercial team really focused on is bringing those things together and trying to figure out how do we move both things in parallel, um, you know, for our client and agency partners. Got it. Got it. So going back to the brand level again, um, we obviously talked about Vanity Fair and Vogue and and GQ a bit. There's definitely a, a much larger portfolio of brands that you have to cover though. So when you're thinking about, um, you know, especially in the coming year, how are you working with uh, editorial or, you know, the more maybe audience focused side of things to try and build more of those global cultural moments? Because again, the Met, I feel like the Met Gala is in a whole different kind of level from a lot of other publisher run events, right? Like it's just, it's a different kind of thing. Um, How are you trying to replicate that for the other brands? And is it mostly event focused? Are you kind of leaning more into the video side of things? Um, you know, what's the kind of strategy for growing these product offerings in the coming year? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think that we look at, you know, what's interesting is you really have to start thinking about like, to your point of like, what is global and what is local, right? And it's kind of like this art, it's definitely not a science and in in how you think about these things. And so, you know, I think overall we think about 
print and IRL events as local. And we think about digital video social as global and local, right? But that's where we're focused on it in terms of like global commercial partnerships, right? And really thinking about the things that we were talking about earlier, it has to be focused on digital video and social, right? So being very clear about like, you know, when I'm talking to, you know, Will at GQ about a global opportunity, that global opportunity really has to be rooted in digital video and social, because that's what we're going to be bringing to the table that we can partner with a brand on and activate across, you know, eight different markets, right? If we're talking with the local teams, of course, it's like, how do you connect back to, again, just like using the GQ thread of like new masculinity, which is like kind of like our global, you know, editorial mission, right? But then how do you make that specific and local to a UK audience or, uh, you know, the audience in Spain or France or Italy? And again, it might be digital video or social, but it also might include print in IRL events in order to reinforce that messaging. And so that's how we're kind of thinking about those things. And then for us, in terms of like the other brands, you know, I think that that's, you know, part of what we're going through now is like a global commercial, you know, uh, uh, you know, organization and, and really connect, having these markets kind of like connected to kind of, um, you know, like my boss, Pam, um, has been, you know, she's a global CRO. She's the president of APAC and the president of the U S. So it's like, you know, she's been thinking about these things for a long time, but like, only like she she has put together I think an operating model now that kind of like enables us to to actually activate against those things and so you know just like one th- small thing that I would that that I think about when you mentioned that is like Connie Nast Traveler for example Connie Nast Traveler you know travel is obviously global and na- inherently global in nature um, from a local market perspective historically Connie Nast Traveler has only been talked about from a local market perspective in the markets in which it was on newsstands right. And the idea that like we don't have Condé Nast Traveler in every single market as a social brand or a digital brand or a video brand, there's no reason for that, right? And we should be talking about that from a global perspective and we should be talking about that from a local perspective. And so those are the things that when you talk about how are you working with editorial in this way, I think it's really taking a look at, you know, what what have we done historically in terms of like how the local markets have uh, been approaching the commercial their, their respective commercial marketplaces what are the things that we think about in terms of like our global portfolio in terms of what brands, you know, architectural digest from a home perspective, right? Um, you know, Connie Nast Traveler from a travel perspective, this idea of home and travel, um, you know, GQ, I would call out with GQ sports, for example, right? GQ hype, which is, you know, really um, focused on music, for example, um, Vanity Fair with film. There's these, there, there's these like passion points that our brands have such, ownership around and are really like the first brands that people go to around these passion points. It's like, what does that global portfolio look like? And how do we make sure that that messaging is showing up in each of our local markets? And I think that's how we're probably working with our editorial teams um, the most frequently and, and the most discussions that we're having around is like, how do we take these local things that we've been doing and how do we have a global lens on it? And then how are we very clear about the things that we need to talk about or that we're doing and how we're reaching audiences and which parts of those things are global versus which parts of those things will only be local. And as soon as you can start kind of like clearing that up and providing clarity around that, I think it helps um, move things along because, you know, that is the the one challenge of being a distributed business, I would say, is that you are on so many different platforms and sometimes prioritization and focus 
can be very hard because you have a right to win in so many different areas. Um, but I think what we just talked about is, is, is kind of been our approach to help simplify the conversation as much as possible. So less about trying to replicate Met Gala for every single brand in the Condé Nast portfolio and more about a consistent kind of approach to editorial content and audience to make sure that you're able to do the more local as as well as the larger global kind of brand identity, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, like there's only one Met. So like if if, if we were trying to like recreate something like that for, for every brand, that would that would be a tall ask, you know. Yeah. So um but at the same time, I think, you know, again, you can look at Wired, you can look at at, at a lot of our brands. I mean, our portfolio against like every major passion point, food, uh, technology, home, travel, fashion film, um, we have a brand that is the number one brand in pretty much every consumer passion point, right? And so just because we might, you know, another another brand might not be re- recreate like that that type of like insane, you know, one-of-one type of, of experience that, that, you know, we run here um, doesn't mean that they can't have an experience or create content that engages with consumers that is the most important and impactful thing for consumers that are obsessed with that passion point. And that's really what we're focused on. Got it. Got it. So in the kind of back half of this conversation, I do want to get into the operational um, approach to how you're, to your point, kind of breaking down the barriers between some of these teams and trying to have those conversations, uh, you know, at a global level too. Um, I heard that the revenue team or the sales team is like, a thousand people big, like it's a huge team. Is that an accurate kind of approximation of how many people you're kind of working with on a semi-regular basis? <laughs> um, I don't, you know, I don't know the specific number. I feel like that that sounds a little bit high, um, but I, I, I don't know specifically. Um, I'm not going to speak on, I, guess, I think, the specific number of heads, but we do have, you know, historically we've we've operated in a brand-based model, you know, and, you know, in the U.S., we went to a category-based model fully um, at the end of 2018. And so, you know, once we went global, that's like kind of like started the pro- some of the process that, that we've been working on across all of our Western European markets, um, shifting from a brand-based model to a um, to more of a category-based model. Because obviously, as you're moving predominantly from a digital perspective, um, you know, we need to sell all of our brands. We need to, to streamline communication to an account with one point of contact that's communicating our offering holistically. And I think that just sets us up to, to increase deal size. It also makes you, I think, much more consultative in nature. Because when you think about the fact, it's like, and, and, and being at Condé Nast for 10 years, like I've run, you know, back in the brand organization, like my last couple of jobs before we went category, like I was leading some of our brands, like in more of like a traditional publisher role. And, you know, I, like when you're leading like Architectural Digest or, or Bon Appetit or whatever, it's like, you know, a client says, oh, I'm focused on food. And you're like, oh, OK, this is how this brand, you know, Architectural Digest does kitchens, right? Like you're you're taking these brands and you're kind of like trying to position them in a way that takes that that sets them up nicely to like win a brief. Right. When you're one point of contact talking to a client about what their objectives are and you have the whole portfolio of Condé Nast with you know, I think number one brand and pretty much every consumer passion point, you just have an opportunity, I think, to be way more uh, consultative around what your approach is and be way more thoughtful around which brands make sense given the client, the objective, and the brief. 
And obviously, we've seen a huge amount of success with that in the US. And, you know, we're working with our, you know, some of our international markets, we're kind of already operating that way. Um, and then some of them, you know, we, we've needed to evolve and kind of like shift the operating model. And so, um, you know, that's, that's been kind of like our focus over the last, you know, six or 12 months is kind of, you know, again, I said this a couple of times, but it really is more of an art versus a science, right? Like there's a, you know, our brands are, are incredible. And so when you have these like, you know, incredible, um, we have the best editors and the best creators in the world. Right. And so a lot of our business is connected to the magic of those creators and the magic of our brands. And so it's not as simple as just kind of like cutting over from a brand based model to a category based model. If you just do that, you put a lot of revenue at risk. Right. And so there's a lot of nuance to like what parts of things you evolve, when, how you do it. Um, and I think that's what we've spent a lot of the you know last 12 months probably, you know, trying to figure out. Yeah. So, you know, now kind of in your global position, how are you making those changes? Like, do you have any examples of rolling out kind of the operational shifts in the Western Europe, uh, you know, areas that you're now operating in? Um, I guess I'm, I'm just curious, like how this on a day to day basis is unfolding, really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was just, you know, I was just in, in in Europe for like the last month and it was a combination of external meetings, but I spent a lot of my time, you know, internally working with the teams. I mean, having gone through this, you know, this shift from a brand based to a category based, you know, organization, obviously there was a lot of lessons, right? And I think that part of this process is like making sure that, you know, you learn from your mistakes or like you can kind of like impart some wisdom on things that you, that you saw not working the first time that you don't want to watch be recreated. Right. And so, you know, for me, it's really about, you know, as a New York based, you know, global sales leader managing teams in Western Europe, it's really important to show up there and be present there and be in the office there and like, um, you know, spend time with the team. I think, you know, when you go through shifts like this, I think one thing that is really important to understand is just kind of like the, the human and emotional element of this type of change. You know what I mean? Like, uh, a lot of people deal with a lot of change differently, right? Some people can embrace that change and, 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 and use ambiguity as an opportunity to, to thrive. Right. Um, but some people have a really hard time with it. Right. And, um, some of those people will never, uh, will never kind of embrace the change. Right. But a lot of people will, it's just, they need a little bit of time and they need some guidance. Right. And it's really hard, I think, to provide that if you're not present there. And so, um, you know, for me, that's what the last, especially like, you know, this is kind of like, um, hits, hits home for me a little bit, just like from this recent trip is that, you know, I did spend a lot of time with the team and really talking about what I'm talking about with you, right. Which is like, well, what's the benefit of a category based model? Like, why are we doing this? Right. Sometimes it can feel like this is happening to me. Why is this happening to me? Why, why did they want to change these things? This does this feels like, you know, this is like a, you know, how does this strategically help us grow our business? Right. And to have kind of like those, like, you know, to bring everyone around at a table in person and really have those honest conversations and, and, you know, kind of no holds bar, like let people express themselves and, and communicate how they feel. And, and let's talk about that. Right. Because I know very clearly that I, I mean, we can rationally talk about this, like being like, you know, disconnected, not having like, you know, sitting in, in, in one of our markets, that's kind of like, you know, th that's going through this evolution. We can look at this and say, yeah, of course, like, you know, if you're talking to a client, if you're only selling one brand, 
the deal can be X. But if you're selling all of the Condé Nast portfolio, the deal could be 5X that, right? But people don't get, it's not necessarily that like individuals are going to get there on their own if they can, if, if they focus a little bit too much on kind of like, how the change is impacting them in a negative way, which, you know, I think is, is, is natural from a human psyche perspective, right? Like we always kind of, we get, we can go to that place pretty quickly. And so that's why I think that, you know, from a leadership perspective, you know, one of the things that, that I've enjoyed about these evolutions and these changes is kind of showing up for people um, and, and trying to be honest with them and, and connect with them and, and help them understand why we're doing what we're doing and what the opportunities, um, you know, mean for them um, and watching people just kind of embrace that and, 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 you know, champion that and starting to put the dots together. Like, it's amazing. Like as, 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 as small as it seems, it's like, it's incredible. Like when you can talk to people about these things and then when it hits them and then like, actually they're in market and it's like, oh, I would sell this like alphabet deal to on Wired. And it's like, well, now I can include like, you know, Vogue and Tatler, for example. Right. Then it's like, and I just, instead of like, you know, hundred K deal. Now it's a 500 K deal. You're like, oh, you know, it's like, it's amazing. Cause you're like, wow, now I'm so empowered to actually like approach my clients. I'm the only one talking to them. There's not 10 other people within this like local market commercial team from nine other brands talking to them. I'm the one point of contact and I represent all of Condé Nast. Like that's a, that's a pretty amazing thing when you can kind of get your mind wrapped around that. Um, but it does take a lot of, I think, um, you know, I think emotional kind of like management, if you will, to get people, you know, over that. Um, just because people love our, like when you work here, you work here because of our brands. And so you take pride in the proximity to the brand. And, um, and, and, and so sometimes that, you know, moving to these models can feel like you're getting a little further away from the brand. And that creates a, a, an, an emotional feeling that you kind of have to, have to address and, you know, have to give space for, but, but also have to address in terms of like the positivity of all these things and what it means for our business. Yeah. Well, I, I get it too. Cause one, there's obviously the learning curve. You have to be an expert now of all of the brands versus just one, but there's also that like categorical, um, I don't know how to, I guess, define it, but like, you know, categories shift in, success and budget, you know, looking at like the economic kind of slowdown, like, you know, you talk to some publishers and I know you mentioned that tech is still a strong category for you, but others have said that tech is, you know, a down category and like travel is really high now, but two years ago it was not at all. So like, I understand from like the perspective of it's more that we have to learn the deal sizes have the potential of being higher, but they also have the potential of, you know, being really hard to sell if, you know, the economy is doing weird stuff. Um, yeah. How how do you kind of approach it from a, you know, okay, you used to sell wired across all the categories. Now you're going to be selling all of the brands across this category. What's like, do you let them pick what they want to work on? Is it more so based on like their closest, um, you know, clients that they have good relationships with? Like, what's the kind of process of getting them from, you know, brand focused to category focused? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I will, from my experience, I would say like doing this in the US because, you know, in Western Europe, you know, for me, it's really about, you know, we have leaders in each of these markets and, and they know their teams far better than I do. So, um, you know, there was really like an empowered leadership group that was kind of that, that it's making a lot of these, you know, decisions at, at the level that we're talking about. But I think that when you go from, I think, brand-based to category-based and kind of like how you make those decisions, I think that you do kind of look at a lot of different things in terms of like, 
account level relationships, you look at like, when you look at an account, it's like, what's the composite of spend across these different brands, right? So, um, and then you also look at, you know, I think an individual in terms of like their ability or how comfortable you think they will be in terms of their acumen. It's like speed to productivity in in a way, right? Where, you know, to your point, you're hundred percent right. Like that is a big shift going from like knowing everything about Vogue to like running fashion and luxury, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's a, that's a big difference. And so, um, you do have to kind of like have some sort of assessment, I think, on on individuals and how well they'll deal with change, um, how well they'll deal with ambiguity. Um, and I think that like, look, like how comfortable are they with like, you know, kind of like or self-aware or open are they to like their own, you know, what they don't know. Right. Like if you pride yourself, like if you worked at a brand and you really prided yourself on knowing every little thing about that brand and that was like where you connected a lot of like self-value and self-worth well, then you're going to, this transition is going to be harder, right? Because you inherently aren't going to know as much about one brand as you now know about 30 brands, right? Um, But if you care about, you know, the relationships that you have, if you care about doing what's best for the account and really focused on that, and you can learn to kind of like adapt to the fact that, you know, how do you know enough about the brands that are core to that piece of business that you're on or that category you're on, and be comfortable with the fact or embrace the fact that like you'll have to, you know, you're gonna have to dedicate some time and some energy, set up some meetings with maybe some of the editorial teams, you know, work really closely with, you know, um, your your commercial creative teams, things of that nature. Um, I, I, then you start realizing like the opportunity and look, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I'm running a sales team, right? And so uh, our job is to generate revenue. Right. And so we're talking about like a lot of qualitative emotional things that are very important. But at the end of the day, it's like you do have to appreciate the fact that like our job is to grow the business. And so like this is the structure that I'm very confident in is the best position to grow our business. So it's almost like letting. So even though, again, like I I fully believe that and that's like uh, it's hard to argue against that. It's it's about letting the space, I think. Right. And not being dismissive against people that aren't just jumping on that bandwagon immediately and that have some discomfort going from kind of like that brand expert to more of that category expert, you know, and and creating an environment for that uh, to to allow them to kind of like grow and evolve and not just being like, I I can't believe you can't see like what we're doing. Like, are you kidding? You know what I mean? Like not. It's easy to create. It's easy to like almost like subconsciously create that type of culture because it feels like such a no brainer to be in a category based model because you're selling audiences in digital, right? And so I think that's the the focus, I think, is, is, is we talk from a leadership perspective, especially like when we were in the US. And again, like when we're having, you know, global leadership meetings, and, and people are going through those evolutions is like, you know, just trying to have like, you know, even though this is kind of like, uh, it's so clear why we're doing this, like in terms of like rationale, that you don't create like an environment of like, um, being dismissive, right to people's feelings about those changes and what they're right. going through. And is that because you had mentioned that there were learnings from doing this in the US that you're trying to, you know, improve upon uh, in Western Europe slash avoid the same kind of maybe struggle points. Um, is that an example of it? Or do you have any other examples of, you know, lessons learned in the first process of this, like whole transition? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, I mean, probably the one thing that I think the most about is, there's kind of two parts to this, I guess, that that I think about is like clarity. It's like clarity is the most important thing because, you know, what ends up happening when you're kind of like going through this evolution too is that 
Um, of course, like, you know, our business, you know, especially for like an, for an advertising business, we have a, a, a significant part of our business is fashion and luxury, right? It's, if you look at a general advertising business, I mean, our business is, is way more uh, of that composite than a normal advertising business, right? And because of that, when you're kind of going from that brand base, I think, to a category base, I mean, you spend, I think, a lot of time, like a lot of the people at the brands are calling on those accounts, right? And so a lot of people have those relationships, right? So there's sensitivity internally, and then there's sensitivity externally because everybody has like their favorite people, right? And for me, it's like, at some point, you just have to make, you have to provide clarity, right? And you can't like enable a lack of clarity because enabling that over a long period of time just like creates more and more discontent. It's like the hardest part is like the in-between period. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you just have to kind of like move forward and, and, and kind of like provide that clarity no matter how hard it is in the short term. What, I, what I've found, and, and I kind of try to echo this message as much, as much as I can, is that most people, even if you deliver bad news to them or news that they don't like, if you deliver it in a clear way, they will, they will move forward. It's when you, it's when you don't provide clarity and that you feel like you're in this like ambiguous, opaque area that you start feeling disempowered. You start feeling like there's no North Star, there's no strategy. And that's where you start like the discon- you know, being discontent really, I think, builds up, right? And so I think that for, you know, overall, the most important thing that we can do is be decisive and drive clarity. And then also like be very clear that decisions are allowed to change, opinions are allowed to change, right? So let's be decisive so that we're forcing things to happen. And then as things happen, we're going to not have bias, but we're going to look at them in a very honest way. We're going to assess them in a very honest way. And if we need to change course based off what's happening, we're going to change course. And I think providing that kind of like permission to fail and evolve, I think is, is one of the important things as, as well. Because, you know, again, when you're running a sales team, you end up having a lot of, I think, type A perfectionists, right? And the idea of like, you know, providing, you know, permission to fail and to learn from your failure is not necessarily something that is like innate for that type of a personality. And I can speak to, you know, I'll speak to my own. Uh, I've obviously had uh, issues with that, that that I've had to kind of, you know, evolve from. Um, But I think that, you know, you embrace those things. I mean, that is truly the only way to, to become a better version of yourself and to evolve is that like, you really, it's not like the it's not if you fail, it's like when you fail and how quickly you're going to kind of understand that and learn from that and grow from that. And, you know, I try to do whatever I can to kind of lead by example and kind of create that culture and, and manage by that. Um, and I try to encourage the rest of the team too, because especially as you're dealing with this kind of transformation, like we are going to fail so much, right? And so the more people try to like pretend it doesn't exist or sweep it under the rug, it's like, you know, it starts getting built up, right? And that couch starts looking like uneven very quickly, right? And that's where that's where a lot of the bad stuff happens if, if, if you continue doing that on a long enough period of time. For sure. And I, I guess one other thing I'm curious about is like, have you needed to change like seller incentives or any kind of like commission structures or even like putting in place, you know, reward kind of systems with this transition to help make it more palatable or even just because it's a different selling category, like it's a different process, I'm sure. Like, has that changed the kind of like payout for the team as well? Yeah, I mean, we're in the process of all of those things. And so, but you're 100% right. I mean, like, you know, especially again for a sales organization, it's like probably nothing uh, correlates to behavior more than like incentive, right? And so, but we've, we're working through a whole host of things, you know, sell systems, order management system, compensation. I mean, 
like, you know, we could spend like five hours talking about, you know, all the infrastructure uh, work streams that are happening right now to kind of, you know, we have this North Star, we have this clear right to win that we talked about earlier, right? But then there's all of the operational systems, infrastructure things that enable and support that type of system. And that is 100% a work in progress. Um, and again, I think it gets back to what we just talked about, which is like, you also have to be honest about those things, right? Like, I don't, I don't hide from those things that like, you know, we're working on getting Salesforce rolled out globally, we're working on, you know, getting an order management system rolled out globally so that we can operate the way that we want to in order to do global digital global video deals like yes like that is the there is going to be some friction on the path to like getting that done right and so versus like creating an expectation and then the infrastructure not supporting that expectation let's just be real that yes we have this expectation and we have to push towards this north star but also in parallel to that the systems are going to get set up and there is going to be some friction or some manual nature in a lot of this work that accompanies that and that's just like part of, you know, what we're dealing with. Like nothing's, nothing's perfect. You know, unfortunately, we're not selling a, a self-serve platform. You know, we're selling a distributed business model um, that at sometimes comes with a lot of complications. But I mean, the thing is this, is, and again, like having worked at, you know, you know Google and, and, and Microsoft before I came to Condé, um, I can tell you that the, the, the emotional connection that I have to our brands, what it, what it means to kind of like, um, work at the same company with with some of the best creatives in the world. Um, I mean, that for me is what, like, that's why I'm here, you know? And, you know, you have to take some of the good with the bad as, as it relates to some of the things that we just talked about in terms of, like, process and infrastructure and all of those things that we need to work through. Um, but I think everyone here, you're here for that mission, right? Like, you are obsessed with our brands and you want to see the continuation of our brands at a global scale um, for a very long time. And I think everyone's kind of hand is in the middle to kind of figure out like how do we um, how do we make these things and, and continue these things being the global cultural powerhouses that they are right and, and um, I think everyone rallied around that kind of mission is is you know just a really exciting thing and, and again it was exciting for us as a local U.S. market um, and it's been exciting for me to be able to like spend so much time with all of our outer markets and really bring them like into that fold, you know what I mean? And, and it's just so much clear that we're like, you know, it might sound cheesy, right? It's like better together sort of energy, right? But like, feels like a bumper sticker. But like, um, when you start thinking about like British Vogue and US Vogue and like the power of those two things and going to brands with like those two things together, right? Or like a global vanity fair and like what we can do, like we talked about earlier. I mean, I don't, there's not another company on the planet that can bring something like that. And it's like, it's not even positioning. Like, I don't have to convince people of that. It's like super clear when you start saying that you're like, wow, you know what I mean? And so I don't know, like, I, I think as much change as we've gone in transformation, I do think that the energy of the commercial team, given kind of like what they have to sell that, that, that wasn't necessarily there before in terms of this global offering, um, there's a lot of energy and a lot of excitement for that. And, and I'm pumped to, to, to play my role in kind of enabling that to happen. Awesome. All right. Last question for you. I know 2022 is looking like a, you know, positive growth year. Um, a lot of people have kind of said that they expect the first half of 2023 to be down or just to be a, a very kind of tough period to get through. What's your kind of prediction for 2023? Um, obviously, the categories that you mentioned are still performing strongly. I'm sure there's a possibility for that to change depending on how you know bad it gets on an economic level. But um, yeah, what are you kind of expecting for 2023? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, look, I, I mean, it's it's not going to be easy. That's for sure. Like, I'm not going to pretend like uh, it's, it's, it's definitely like blue skies, but I do expect us to be able to, you know, grow, um, you know, a couple of percentage points, I think next year, um, even in recessionary, you know, headwinds, I do feel like what we're, the things that we're talking about, it should strengthen us across all of our markets, right? So even if, you know, BAU for us was maybe, you know, flat or down based off of like the ad marketplace, like contracting or recessionary uh, headwinds, I think that having these, the, the commercial team kind of like align now um, from a sales perspective, and really being able to take our brands from a go-to-market perspective in these new global ways, it I think it's going to help us unlock local budgets outside of the U.S. in a really significant way um, that should help bolster and kind of like mitigate whatever risk may exist based off of kind of like the macro marketplace. And so I do have optimism that um, I think that that we will see growth. Maybe you know, obviously, like twenty twenty one was was a crazy year because of you know the baseline of twenty twenty. Um, you know we will see growth this year um, in the, I think in in the high single digits, Um, you know, I I don't, maybe don't expect the same growth in 2022, but I do expect uh, pretty healthy growth and uh, you know, definitely performing above the competitive side for sure. In 2023 or 2023. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, That's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and kind of getting into some of the nitty gritty parts of, you know, operational changes. I think it's an area that, doesn't get talked about nearly enough, but it's, you're right. It's an important part of revenue diversification and growth. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Kaylee. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to the Digiday podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode.